Life is funny. One moment you're going in one direction and the next you hit a dead end and take the detour, which sometimes leads you right back to where you started. That has happened to us on more than one occasion. And the result has been easier access to the truth of impermanence. Such is what happened last week when we announced that this episode would be about awareness and recognition on the path of embodiment. While that likely shows up in the discussion, the guest we thought would be unable to be with us is with us today, and we couldn't be happier to pivot back and continue our conversation about archetypes and patterns. Today we are chatting with Rochelle Clausen, whose background is a beautiful balance of the arts and sciences. We could have talked with her for hours and hope that she will be a friend of the show so we can continue the conversation. Through her background in dance and mime, and later as a massage therapist, an expert in fascia, Rochelle brings with her a wealth of information led by these experiences. When we ventured into the landscape of archetypes and patterns, we had no idea how deep this conversation would go. When you think about it, archetypes and patterns exist everywhere if you're looking for them, including locations, and emotions, as well as the character traits that we assign to them. Rochelle has tapped our imagination and given us fresh food for thought and embodiment. I am Teresa Tobin Macy. I'm Sherry Sadoff-Hank, and we are Anecdotal Anatomy. Our guest tonight is Rochelle Clausen, B-S-B-C-T-M-B. She is a board-certified massage therapist, the owner of Flourish Bodywork in San Diego, California, which I hope to visit her there soon, the co-director of Anatomy Scapes, where she teaches gross anatomy workshops through a fascial system lens, and they're designed for touch therapists. Rochelle serves on the Fascial Research Society's Fascial Net Plastination Project. Boy, is that a mouthful. <laughs> on the committee and has worked as a volunteer dissector, photographer, and media coordinator since its inception in 2017. Rochelle co-produced Fascia in a New Light, the exhibition, in Berlin at the Fascia Research Congress in 2016, she debuted the world's first human fascia plastinets and will be co-presenting a pre-conference workshop this year at the Fascial Research Congress number no. six in Montreal in September, 2022. Rochelle has an extensive performing arts background, including ballet, modern dance, and two years of theatrical mime college studying with the graduates of Marcel Merceau. <laughs> I always trip over that word, I'm sorry. Mime school in Paris. Rochelle is a lover of the arts and the body and finds her inspiration in the beauty of the natural world. Her passion and creativity is contagious and has served her well in her eclectic adventures, both professionally and personally. She is a contributing author to Fascia, Function, and Medical Applications, CRC Press 2021, 
The Myofascial System in Form and Movement, Handspring Publishing, 2022, and Massage and Body Work Magazine, September and October issue 2018. Welcome, Rochelle. Thank you so much. I am so, so honored and pleased to be here with hanging out with you guys tonight. I cannot wait. We feel the same. We absolutely feel the same. Yeah, it is exciting to have you here. And um, I would like to just start with a question that we ask all of our guests to get them to to get to know them just a little bit and to let our audience have a little peek inside of each of those guests and that question is what would your ted talk be such a fun question gosh aren't ted talks amazing i mean to even dream of being able to be articulate enough to pre present a, a ted talk with such clarity and precision um, I think that currently, if I were to do a TED Talk, it would definitely be about fascia and the fabric of the human body. But in the overarching kind of story of pretty much everything that sums up what I've been involved with um, in school and, and in my profession over the past now going on 20 years, it would be something about living a, I guess, being a thinking and feeling spiritual being inside of a physical form and all of the interconnections that that it has uh i it, it crosses over to so many things and i've struggled contemplating so many different elements of that and i think they all affect each other and uh it's what makes life rich but it's what makes us endlessly fascinating <laughs> and that's how we originally met through this love of fascia. And we met at a, um, at a training with uh, PJ Eau Claire, um, Devo Mueller, and Dr. Robert Schleip. And that was our fascial fitness training. And that's when you and I first got together in Massachusetts. And then I think we spent some time at the Fascial Research Congress together as well. Most likely. I know it's really bizarre and cool that I have all these amazing friends that I'm crisscrossing paths with at very, uh, very different locations. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I saw you in Ulm, Germany. Weren't you there for that thing? Uh, or were you in Berlin for that other thing? And it's just amazing that there's this tribe of people that will go to far flung places to discuss and learn about the connective tissue system of the human body. We are a a very cool group of kids. <laughs> the way that you described your TED Talk, it pretty much described the inspiration and the execution of this podcast. You know, our first season, we went through the koshas, the different layers of our being from gross to subtle, from the physical body all the way to the bliss body. And, you know, tried to kind of bring connection to what that means in terms of knowing ourselves and how we are in the world. And so season two felt really naturally designed to move into embodiment. Mm -hmm. And so with this embodiment, what you described about just being in these physical forms, you know, there's so much that's going on in there. Um, and that this exploration allows us to, to embody or recognize when we're disembodied. You know, I don't know that being fully embodied is the goal necessarily, but to understand what that is in, in different contexts. 
And so I would love to hear more about, and so the, this couplet that we're doing, we're doing the season in couplets. So Teresa and I spoke a bit about last week about archetypes and patterns mm -hmm. and how that fits into this notion of embodiment. And I understand that you have some experience with archetypes and I would love to hear more. I do. I have such an interesting in, uh, experience with it. It goes back to what uh, Teresa was reading kind of in my bio, a little slice of my life that has actually really influenced me. And I think probably comes up more often almost on a daily basis than I realize. And that's my training in mime. Um, a lot of us have seen mime, white face, white gloves, but I didn't even realize until I started studying it with any depth, like how deep the history and how much beyond just uh, Marcel's, uh, Marcel Marceau's character Bip is the one that became so famous with the striped shirt and the, you know, the flower in his hat. But as a theatrical form, a lot of it's not actually performed in whiteface at all, even though whiteface has a history of, uh, I, it's either legend or history it's hard to say but it was back when the theaters didn't have anything but candlelight to uh, light the stage and you know natural acoustics in order to project the sound and uh, there was a something about a guy who was either got some flour on his face or one of the the bags of something that was behind the stage and it ended up like you know getting this puff of powder on him and his face became more visible and so they were like oh this is a great idea so that we can see facial expressions um so i mean one of the first things that i think of with mime that um you kind of like you know it but you don't know it if you haven't heard the backstory right the hands and the face are considered the two most expressive parts of the body so when you see a mime you'll see them wearing white gloves and a white face because you can convey a great deal of information with the hands and with the face. And, and we do on a daily basis, whether we're trying to or not. So the body is actually the secondary piece. But if you design the body in a particular way behind the expression that's on the face or the gesture of the hands, you can convey a complete character. And um, actors often have this kind of training, even if they didn't formally get trained as a mime, because they have to take on and truly embody the personality and character of whoever it is that they're trying to convey. And that person may or may not be similar to themselves. So how do you do that? And, and what, what makes a person recognizable or their emotions recognizable or their state of mind or the profession, you know, there's clues that we're picking up on constantly through body language that we aren't even maybe purposefully sending as messages, but they, they're received. And so, you know, I loved the um, discipline of mime of breaking everything down to its elements so that you would, they section the body into the head, the neck, the chest, the waist, the pelvis, and then the legs, uh, and the feet and then the hands and the face. So these segments then are either rotated or inclinated uh, with inclinations to right or left, forward or back. And you can literally puzzle a person into a shape and, and go, oh, I know that shape. I recognize that. And Marceau had a code, a language of archetypes that he created that were emotions. And I'm not even sure the, if, I haven't counted all of the ones I know, and I haven't, I've looked to see if I could find a list of like, did he have a, you know, the complete and unabridged <laughs> list of emotions that he had these statues that were created for, but they included things like anger, grief, um, jealousy, um, sadness, melancholy, which is a bit of a nuance, right? 
um, joy. And so each one of those segments of the body was positioned in a particular position. The face had a particular expression and the hands had a particular shape. And it bridged cultures and it bridged language. And Marceau was known around the world because he was funny in any language. And he often didn't speak the language where he performed. So he was literally able to embody human thought and human emotion and convey that and tell a story with it. Um, so it was a, uh, it's something I've carried through. And I, I look at uh, the notion of what can we express through the angle of a bone? I talk about the sternal, the sternum, like I write a book, the angle of your sternum, what are you saying? <laughs> you know, yeah. and the sternum is a really telling bone, but isn't it weird that just by angling it up or dropping it back, you can convey a sense of either confidence or aggression or arrogance or humbleness, meekness, sadness, grief, right? And there's a real range of motions that will come, just one bone. I mean, a lot of the other bones have to follow suit, but that in particular has always really captivated me about the language of this embodiment, you could say, the merging of a thought, an emotion, a story into how our body tells that story. You know, the whole idea of communicating with the body, when Teresa was telling me earlier about your mime history, it, I have a background in theater and I went to NYU for acting and one of um, my teachers that uh, was a mask teacher and she had spent a lot of time in Bali and she had these beautiful Balinese masks that she would take out and we would um, line up in front of the big mirror, the big ballet mirror, and we would take the mask and we had to hold it next to our faces. And you had said something about um, breaking down the different features, or I forget exactly how you said it, but the nuances of the bones. And so we would have to hold the mask next to our faces and find the similarities, find where the expression was, because once the mask went on, we lost that one element of great expression, which is the face. So there was no face facial expression, but it was all body and hands. Yeah. So all of that expression had to come into the body. But what I had never considered, I was, I think, a little young to really understand all of these nuances, is how beautiful this idea of global communication through the body, through our, our expression of our the thing that we all share, these bones and blood and fascia, all this connective tissue, that we can connect to others through our connective tissues in a very literal way. I'm gonna look at mime the whole, a whole new way. You know, I have the, the scene from Tootsie in my head. My sister Julie used to laugh so hard every time, you know, he was all pissed off and walking through Central Park, sees the mime and just knocks him down. Um, yeah, we're, we're not always very nice, but, <laughs> but there's the expression, even when he got up in that scene and he wiped himself off and you know took a stance and gave a look you knew exactly what that person was feeling really cool yeah and maintaining the character that he was in undoubtedly because it is yeah. a character right when you're a mime you're in character mm -hmm. and that illusion is a part of that that whole story mask work is something that we did as well the other thing that we did was statue work and the statue work was statue analysis so we're going to like florence right in our in our studies and we're looking at the roman columns and we're you know looking at um the relief uh on many of the temples and buildings that would show uh the story of war or the story of um sacred uh you know religious practices 
faces. Like it was carved with just bodies. There's no words, but it's showing the story. And if you've ever seen any of those, they kind of work like a scroll where the story begins and maybe the same character shows up multiple times as it's taking you through a chronological order of what happened. Um, and you can find that in a lot of buildings that still have those kinds of carvings, um, but especially the ones from ancient times. So we would study those and we try to recreate those statues and like, how can we, and it was, it's such an interesting thing to take on a posture that is not yours mm. because you feel things and, and it shows how the body itself is speaking. And even though I didn't have that feeling, because I didn't create that out of my natural experience, Expression. most of the time we have a thought or a feeling and we create that through our bodies but in this case we would take on the body and then see what it does to your to your mind and emotion which again I'm actors experience this all the time I'm sure it probably really messes with their head sometimes if they're playing a dark character like we've heard it's stories where that's been the case and it takes you a while to shake off this other person that you're you know portraying but not but in just a really simple way, um, we had one exercise where we were working with our um, analysis and the scripting of a posture. And so the technique was that one person would leave the room and then one person would pick a pose, any statue they wanted to create. It could be just a gesture of hands outstretched, looking at the sky and a foot out behind or anything they wanted. And then the rest of the team, the class would script it so that they would basically record it based on the mime analysis languaging of inclinations and rotations all the way down to the feet, head to toe. But then they had to recreate it on the person who had been outside of the room. So this, that person would come back in the room. And in the case when that was me, I came back in the room. So you start in what's called double zero. And double zero is no expression on the face and no expression on the body. And so you start there and then they take you through stages of rotations and inclinations until they can get you back into the posture that the person had created before. And um, as I was telling Teresa this story earlier, Rachel was my partner on this one. So Rachel had created this form and uh, she had a little character that was the character she often portrayed when she was in mime. And um, so that was sort of the posture she took was one that she had used often. So they put, took me back through this. I didn't know what my final shape was gonna be, but just before I got into that final shape and as the last piece kind of fell into place, I had this wash that came over me that I was like, oh my God, I'm Rachel. Like I felt the sense of her presence because this is a shape that her body takes on. I've seen her, you know, gesture through it and move through it. And it was kind of a walking in that person's shoes and actually being able to feel what it might like feel like to be her just for a split second just in that, that little moment which is a deep thing to think about you know how people walk and how they express themselves is truly reflecting usually an element of their personality or of their um i you know their their temperament their upbringing their 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 self-expression is in their body and we just kind of take it for granted but it's a really different thing when you have when you actually take on that shape and feel what it might feel like. You've gone from mime school and this study of the body, its expression, its embodiment, the emotions, and then you were led to massage therapy. So I'd be really interested to hear how you got there and how all of this background training influenced your massage practice and how you work with your clients. 
circuitous route. That's what I'll start with saying, circuitous route. <laughs> My mom always says, looking back over your life, you can usually see how you got from one place to another, but moving forward, they seem so unrelated, right? Such an unrelated kinds of things. She said, someday, Rochelle, it will all come together. I think I'm old enough at this point where I can see where like, yeah, there's a thread and the thread kind of is these things we're talking about, the mind, the body, the emotions, the physical expression, and then just beauty. I think beauty encom encompasses all of it. So with beauty, I decided to take a ceramics course. <laughs> and so I was taking an intensive ceramics course. I was at the ceramics lab five days a week and um, it was a summer class, I guess. And, um, you know, creative arts, I had some time and uh, we were doing this little project where we were making a mask of all things. Isn't that funny? That fits right into this conversation. Right. We were making a death mask, which is usually done with plaster of Paris. And it's, you know, sets up over 15 minutes time and then you take it off. Well, the teacher had come up with this other method where there was fibers, not unlike the fibers in our fascia with a liquid component that was poured onto the face and was supposed to be quick setting. So there were straws in the guy's nose and he was our demo and she poured it on his face, but there was a problem. It wasn't setting. And so it was dripping down his face and he keeps pushing it. She's pushing it back on. And then one of the straws comes loose from his nose and everyone who's watching gasps, just like you just did, Sherry. And we were like, <laughs> oh no, oh no, this is going to be bad. Of course, I mean, he wasn't strapped down. He could just he had his hands he could just scrape it off of his face at any given moment but he wanted to make this work and so he kept giving us the thumbs up keep going he could still breathe out of one nostril but there was tension in the air and it was palpable and then one of the gals in my class walked over to the side of the guy lying on the table and she put one hand on his shoulder and she put one hand on his wrist and his whole body just settled and it, I was like what was that so I asked her afterwards, I'm like, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> and what do you do exactly? And so she's like, oh, I'm a retired massage therapist. And at that time, I wasn't really aware of the fact that that was a career path choice. I think it was much more, much less mainstream, let's just say. I don't feel like there were as many spas or even private practices. It was just sort of niche and here and there um, or very luxury, right? So she got me curious and we started talking and she said, I bet you would be great at this. I was kind of in a transitional point in my career. And so she told me about the school she went to, which was local in San Diego. One thing led to another. Next thing you know, I'm the um, director of admissions and I'm going to school at night. And, uh, <laughs> and that was the path. So I ended up, you know, being at the massage school almost all day, all night. I joked about keeping just some clothes in my office so I could just sleep for a few hours and wake up. But it was a great opportunity for me to also um, have a connection with the faculty and with the just the knowledge of what it required to become licensed in the field itself at a level that I never would have gotten as just a student. So it was really a great two years that I spent there at Mueller College of Holistic Studies here in San Diego. And I'll tell you, um, part of why I was so captivated by it, what intrigued me about massage, besides just the experience in the ceramics course, my degree was in psychology. And I was battling with, uh, am I going to become a licensed clinical practitioner? Am I going to be a talk therapist? Is that where I'm heading? Or is there something else for me? And I kept thinking, no, no, get your master's, go for it. You're good at this. You, you, know, you have a mind for it. I kind of grew up in a household of counselors. So it all was very natural to me. 
but there was something about it that I kept hitting resistance and not doing it. And I, I wanted to be dancing and doing theater and mime. And um, I just felt like sitting like in a chair across from a person who was struggling with their problems was probably one of the most depressing things I could possibly do with my life. <laughs> and I worked at some offices where I saw the clinical uh, or the licensed therapist that at the end of each day, they just looked exhausted. And I thought, I don't know that I want that. So anyway, um, I got this notion to check out massage school and all of a sudden it clicked. I was like, we can reach people through touch and that we're, perhaps the tension that lies in the body can be accessed more quickly than solving the puzzles of the mind. And that really was the mindset of the man who founded our school, who was a missionary and was um, in Africa. And he was very much in the religious practice of, of reaching people and heal, kind of in the healing space, I guess, in that regard. But he also, by living in Africa, saw how touch was so much more a part of their lives than it is here in the US. And US, we've become more and more, I don't know, what's the word? It's not really touchophobic. I don't want to say that because obviously there's there's touch that's inappropriate. Litigious. What litigious. 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 We like to sue people. Okay, that's a so, fair way. Yeah. It. I'm about to explode because you have just put so much on the table that I mean talk about the threads and the through lines. So you know this idea that even saying that working through the body might be more efficient in some ways than getting to the mind. I also come from a family of counselor. Well, my dad was a forensic psychiatrist and my mother was a clinical social worker. Um, wow. And I have another story about my dad for later, but this idea that we, we separate them like more this than that, or that we do this or that, but that we know from the koshas and we know from everything we've already said that they're connected, that it's not one or the other, but it's, it's reading the room. It's saying, how does, how will this person best be healed or get into what they need to know? Some, that's why I think somatic, somatic therapy has become such a buzz lately because there's this understanding that moving and getting in and releasing whatever is trapped. We talk a lot about the stories the body holds and the stories the body tells. And so just by moving and letting that, you might even, once that's done, be able to access the mind in a more clear way. So, but before that you were talking about the statue work and um how getting into those shapes and feeling people yes actors first you take on the posture of the character then you put on their clothes and you put on you know their wigs and their makeup and then you look you have this whole physical embodiment of someone who is not the person who put it on all of a sudden you are a different person so what you suggest in that is that when you can put someone into a shape and then they feel something is that we have such a great capacity to change our, our given situation that if we're feeling something and our body is like this and we begin to request the opening then all of a sudden the heart might be a little more boastful at first and then get humble and then just feel you know the the demon of the heart chakra is grief so when you said that i was like oh you know that that is also there but that each one of these things is about using the body as the data that we have to be able to learn more about this thing that is the body this thing that you know can react in one way where teresa and i were talking how um and it sounded like we were talking we all have multiple personality syndrome but no <laughs> disorder it's not that but we all do embody different archetypes i was saying to 
today I was at the doctor's office with one of my kids and my mama bear came out. I was like, err. And, but any other situation, maybe the, the nurturer would come out, you know, or someone a little more understanding, but no, you're messing with my, uh, but that we have all of this wealth of information inside us and we don't know ourselves. We don't know what to look for. We don't know. That's why we go to therapists. We go, people massage. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, I came in here feeling one way. Now I feel amazing. So the, there's still so much more, there's so much mystery, but I think we're beginning to, to dive in. And so like all of these things now that, and you also said you weren't sure if it was legend or history about um, going back, but isn't that what myth is? It's legend and history coming together to tell us a story that makes sense through time, through time. So not only is what we're talking about, you know, crossing borders of language and culture, but it also crosses time barriers. Um, so I just, I don't, there's no question in that, but conversation. Not so, right? <laughs> all good stuff. I love, oh. I love how much all three of us always, like we seem to just connect on mm -hmm. so many of these concepts. I was thinking the body as ally, right? Like the, the body is our ally. I think our, our culture is so oftentimes putting our body as enemy, you know, and our body as a thing to conquer or a thing to um, control, you know, whether it's through our, you know, diet or our weight or our strength or, you know, our fitness level. It's like, how can we master our body instead of, our body actually being a resource for us to um, access parts of our psyche <laughs> and access parts of our heart and soul um, instead. I, there's, um, I've studied a lot with O.C. Livney. She's here in San Diego and she teaches Chinate Song um, and she calls it Soul Gate Healing. Chinate Song is a kind of applied Qigong. It's, it's from an Eastern perspective of basically the revitalization of the internal organs. And from the you know, the map, the um, paradigm that each one of our organs is a uh, kind of the ruler of particular sets and they're kind of emotional pairs. There's sort of the one that's when things are in balance and then there's one when it's off balance, you know, where you have the heart is in balance is full of joy, but in out of balance, it's, it's mania or depression, right? Either direction. And the, uh, the liver can be quite a, a balancer of all emotions and a smoothing out of things. But when it's out of balance, it's anger, it's rage, it's self-hatred. So you have these really cool, really recognize it. And Eastern medicine did not do what Western medicine did. They didn't ever go through the separation of mind and body in the same way that, that, East, that Western medicine did when along and you know there's this separation of that which is of the spirit and unseen is of the domain of the church and that which is seen can be of science okay go ahead and study the body but as soon as you're talking about feelings thoughts or emotions now you're in the wrong jurisdiction you're not allowed to talk about that which mm -hmm. is why i think our our field of psychology has grown up so separately from our our field of western medicine with the only exception of pharmacology right so pharmaceuticals cross both of them um, but otherwise, it's like, oh, you're having a kidney problem. Well, it's just a physical thing as opposed to something about the waters of your body and, you know, all of the other kinds of things that we would be taken to an account if you were being looked at as by a Chinese practitioner. 
Anyway, the source of, of that work is very much in Taoist principle. And in Taoist principle, from my understanding, is that there's densities of the body as you move outward. And this may echo something similar. I don't know Ayurveda as well. But this concept that the lightest form is perfect balance, and that's where the soul resides. And then the next layer is where you move into the mind, which is a slightly more dense body. Thought. Then you have the next layer, which is the emotion, which is a slightly more dense body. It's a feeling, it's a sensation. And then you have the actual physical body. And so what I loved about this model when I learned it was that you can make a change of mind, which can then echo through the emotion that can echo through and change the body. But the opposite is also true. You can shift the body, which will then shift the feeling, which will then shift the thought which will then return you to a level of balance. And I think that's why I enjoyed body work and chose to pursue a path of body work as opposed to a, a, a path of talk therapy is that clearly both can make massive changes in our lives. And I am a consumer of talk therapy and I highly recommend it. <laughs> but I'm also a consumer of body work and somatic practices where it's a matter that you can come in in a bad mood and everything seems chaotic and you feel stressed out and then you get a shift in the body and like you said a moment ago you have that clarity of mind that maybe now you can actually deal with well what's really frustrating you oh well you know it's just simply a matter that the schedule is off and I can't it's not enough time to get from here or there or my closet is disorganized and I can't think straight when I can't find my clothes <laughs> you know and it just kind of takes everything down a notch by treating the body the most dense form mm -hmm. um, sometimes is the one that needs the most help and it can echo up and through to the soul. So Teresa, before you say, I just want to give the dad story real quick because it fits in right here and then I'll, I'll zip it. Um, <laughs> but just as far because what you just described were the koshas. Exactly. Okay. It's like the same I model. Wonder. Yeah. Um, my dad, when he was sick, both of my parents are now gone. They were wonderful. And anything I say, if I go for the joke and I miss the joke and it sounds mean, I don't mean it. I love them very much. <laughs> but at the, my dad was extremely accomplished. But he had really poor posture. His shoulders would roll forward. And my mother was always saying, Bob, sit up straight, stand up straight. She never gave a reason. She just, for her, it was more aesthetic. It was like, just stand up straight. And when at the end, he also had congestive heart failure with a man with the biggest heart in the world. I always thought they have to change that name. But I said to him, instead of hearing stand up straight or sit up straight, think about it as the physician that you are. He was a medical doctor as well. I said, when you close your shoulders, you're closing the space where your lungs and your heart live. Just imagine if you were to soften your back body and let the opening here, that all of a sudden you have all this extra space. You might get a little more breath, just at the breath level. And then I would put my hands in between, a hand in between his shoulder blades. And I would just say, just you know, hug my hand gently. And just notice how you feel. Like maybe there's a different feeling. Maybe it's not about how you look to sitting up straight or standing up straight, but how you feel. And it's not too late to, to reimagine that. And I think he had some, I mean, I don't know what he felt in that moment. He's like, oh, that's interesting. You know, and his shrink mind starts, starts working. But that's <laughs> all after the because. So I'm, I, he's not here to ask him. But I just thought that was, you know, at the, working at the level of the body to open up the breath and the energy. And um, it seemed to do something in that moment. Well, and so much more than just like forcing an opening instead offering a support, right? And mm -hmm. and uh, Teresa and I were talking about this earlier today. I know that that conversation was not recorded. We kind of <laughs> wish that it had been because we were just chatting, but then we got into some really good juicy stuff. But it was this idea that people take on postures oftentimes to reflect their inner sense of self. And sometimes you can adjust the posture, but you haven't adjusted the inner sense of self. And so they say, well, this doesn't feel like me. Mm -hmm. 
or, oh, I would never stand that way because it makes me feel arrogant, right? Specifically the chest opening thing. Chest is a big deal, right? There's a lot that happens there. And I even, after my father passed away um, eight years ago now, it's, we're just coming up on, I think the ninth year now, this goes by so quickly, but the year that he passed away, I physically could not stand up straight. I could not lift my heart. My heart needed to be deep inside the cavity of my body. And when I lifted it, it felt horrible. And it was for frustrating to me because I didn't feel like I was standing up straight, but I was like, there's no, the grief was still present. It just, it needed to be in hiding. And, and then, and I remember when it started to shift and I could lift and I felt good doing it. And I think we have to keep that in mind as, as body workers and as just people judging other people for their posture, which, right. you know, we all do that sometimes. Um, there's something that uh, may not be the right timing and it may not be the right, they don't have the support like you offered your father. Here's the support. Well, now that I have the support, it's easy to open the front. Mm-hmm. But if the support's not there, which may also be an atrophied muscle that's not strong yeah. enough or whatnot, or physically, mentally, emotionally, I don't feel supported in my life. Therefore, mm-hmm my heart will stay in this position. Thank you very much. You know, and that kind of thing is, um, is a deeper understanding. I think that, that we can have some compassion for and understand. It's all about reading the room. Yeah. You and I both (laughs) talked about that and I had shared with you earlier, we were talking about teaching massage, different techniques. And, um, we have talked about the Ted talk. So my Ted talk would be touch. And I had shared with you, And this is in relation to sometimes people just need this support and maybe it's not about the posture and we get to see beyond the posture to deeper layers of what's going on. And I mentioned to you that I'm I'm a big advocate for technique and there are many fabulous techniques in body work that we can bring to our table and be discerning on which tool we pull out in what situation. But there are times when the tool that we're pulling out is simply connection and touch. Yeah. And just, and you know, it took me a little bit after being a massage therapist and really being next to that table and sharing touch for me to realize that touch is always reciprocal. I, you know, people believe that I am touching them. I am healing them. They are coming to me for this. Um, And when I would share with my clients that they're touching me as much as I'm touching them, it was kind of a concept that they really had not considered that there was a benefit both ways. So I am grateful that I have an abundance of touch in my life and that I've touched so many different people on their journeys that I'm sad to say I don't even remember all their names anymore, but... I was still blessed with whatever those interactions were. Um, so massage and, you know, my teacher, you spoke of your teacher a little bit. He was the first person who mentioned it when I was in school. I went to the Pennsylvania School of Muscle Therapy um, that one of the positions he had besides teacher was that he worked with a psychologist and they co-treated and this was back in 2003 wow. and they were already seeing the power of taking talk therapy and touch therapy and blending them for a much uh, more complete way of, you know, offering service to others and to help people 
have both that mind and body connection in their um, in their therapy. And I'm also a big component of using <laughs> of being with uh, both types of therapists. Um, but well, this is our first language. You know, that's what we. Where for, I had a very interesting experience getting a facial one time where she was using these like, mm, I think it was some kind of almost a TENS machine kind of thing that was designed for facials that were these balls that were metal that were just smooth and like rubbing around my face. And I was like, I think I'm having an, an in utero memory. Like it just like <laughs> something so soft against my cheek, you know, it just made me at the very least a, a baby memory because babies, you know, they experience so much with their faces because their hands aren't really under their control yet. Um, but that's, you know, before there's language, there's touch, you know, touch is how we soothe our, our babies and how we um, show them our love and make them feel safe. It's really powerful. That doesn't go away just because we're adults. Yeah. Uh, my end of year project in massage school was, I chose infant massage. Uh, oh, yeah. But it didn't wind up being infant massage. It wound up being a um, end year project about the power of touch. And as I started looking into and researching infant massage, it led me to a research study that was performed post-World War II when many children were or orphaned. And there was a high mortality rate. And I believe it was Johnson & Johnson, but I'm not really sure, was doing a research study as to why this ha was happening. And as they went to the orphanages, they found the babies were clean, they were fed, they, you know, in, on vision, everything looked like it was how it should be. But they were also very understaffed. And all the bottles were propped up. And although the caretakers were compassionate, loving people, they just had, um, they were just overwhelmed with the amount of babies in their care. And so they, I think that is the first time they started to label it failure to thrive. And this led me to a research, another bit of research of something called a kangaroo project. Mm -hmm. And the kangaroo project I thought was brilliant. It was, it took place in a NICU unit. And what they did was they invited in seniors to hold rock and just love and share touch with the babies. And both of these um, groups uh, had a much better improved quality of life and socialization. It was just um, amazing that the two groups, they brought together two groups that had the highest instance of not enough touch in their life to mm -hmm. support and care for each other. Um, so yeah. beyond the mortality rate on that, I would be really curious to see a follow-up study about the patterns that happened as a result within that particular um, group, you know, because it's almost like a, a controlled study. I mean, we've got, you know, a certain, it's not really a controlled study, but they've got a certain number of kids who are, you know, deprived failure to thrive. But what does that mean throughout their lives? And what sort of archetypal behaviors and character traits 
are can we then attribute to that time you know if we're talking about embodiment and these are great great anecdotes so this is anecdotal anatomy we're talking about you know the stories that that create who we are that how who are we this is where we started this conversation you know that we don't really know a whole lot about ourselves and we look back at these types of stories and what does that mean over time what are the patterns that are created from a lack of touch um I put it out there. To, that. Put that out there to the group. I remember that study too, because in our massage college, we also had that presented to us. And there was another one that you may have also seen. There was a video that we were able to watch, which was where they had um, primates of some kind. I can't remember exactly what what uh, species it was that they separated the babies from their mothers at birth and they still fed them and they did everything else, but they kept them separated. So they were not able to touch them and these monkeys became violent and i saw they you know how i mean primates have such human looking little faces that you can see their facial expression and i remembered seeing um one of these monkeys like turn to the camera and just have this like scowl and it was a baby monkey right super cute but it had this hardness to it and um it was really interesting because i was like i've seen that face before and it's usually on the face of neglected children um, abused children, you know, like it was, or even adults, frankly, the homeless people sometimes that you'll see that have a very hardened look about them and maybe they're not fully in their right mind. And it's like, dude, all they did was deprive these monkeys of touch. They had everything else. And there was clearly a, a mental impact that changed their entire physicality and countenance. It, it was, you know, that's, if you didn't think you liked massage before, <laughs> like, these little things are pretty like, okay, babies die or don't gain weight and monkeys become violent and aggressive. It's like, these are, this is to the power that comes in our bodies. I mean, this is truly, um, it's a, it's such a gateway to so much more than just skin, fascia, muscle, tendon, you know, there's, there's a lot, it, it links all those parts of us together. Yeah. And uh, that is a good segue when you talked about, uh, you know, this mind-body connection and there's so much more. But I know in your bio we talked about plastinates and, the, and I really would like to hear because this story does really lead us into the depths of knowledge inside our body and maybe how um, this project may have shown you some patterns within yourself the team that you worked with, patterns in research, or what you learned through this plastination project. And if you could briefly start by defining what that is so our listeners will understand what we're talking about. Thankfully, <laughs> you already told me, Teresa. <laughs> strange words we're throwing around, right? I know it's like some, uh, you, you, the first time, I'm sorry, what did you say? And then they say it again, you still don't know what they said. One of those kinds of words. Yeah. So. Thank you. And yes, and to be brief, I guess would be the most challenging because I'm still processing the experience. I've spent the past four years working with the Fascial Net Plastination Project, which Robert Schleip named and also quote, quickly regretted his decision because it's such a long name. <laughs> He's like, I know, I know it should have been shorter, but I, I've actually put a lot of thought to it. And I don't think you can shorten it without changing um, the meaning. It describes so much what we did. So Fascial net, let's start there. Fascia, as we fascia, fascia, we can pronounce it either way. In the human body, it's a subset of the connective tissue system. So you may or may not know that the human connective tissue system includes bone, 
blood, uh, cartilage, and proper fascia or proper proper connective tissue. My, I'm sorry. So there's four types of tissue in the human body, only four, which is amazing because everything seems so complex. That seems so simple. Four types of tissue in the human body are epithelial. That would be the skin is the one you're most familiar with, but it exists in other places as well. Muscle tissue, nervous tissue, and connective tissue. So connective tissue is a category that's also a bit broader, I think, than most people know. And when you talk about fascia, sometimes fascia and connective tissue are used interchangeably, but they aren't exactly interchangeable. It's like saying that daisies and roses are both flowers, therefore all flowers are daisies. Not true. Connective tissue is the main category. That's the flowers. And then the roses, we'll say, is the connective tissue. Uh, sorry, is like the proper connective tissue. But you also have bone, you have blood, and you have cartilage. And those are considered specialized connective tissue. So fascia is this subset of connective tissue and it gets really overlooked um, because it's kind of the in-between stuff. I mean, people days and said things like, it's the air instead of the building. Like, okay, but fascia is actually quite tangible and it actually requires a scalpel to cut through it. So it's more substantive than air, um, but it is sort of the thing you don't see, right? It's sort of the, it's in this, it's the white space on the writer's page um, because you're looking at the words and you're forgetting that there's actually all this space that's shaping around the words that makes, defines them. Um, so in this, in this, you know, human body, as we start as an embryo, we start as mostly soft stuff. And then we start to fill in with more differentiated tissues and we grow in, we grow ourselves. And what's cool about fascia is that we're, we're always growing ourselves and fascia is constantly adapting to our movement patterns, to our postural patterns. Um, it helps give us more support when we're doing stuff that demands that by laying down more fibers. It's kind of like reinforcing the walls or reinforcing the roads if they get driven on a lot. <laughs> um, and then it's also quite the opposite. It's uh, in its finer um, and more delicate state, it's the gliding spaces that allow things to move past each other without getting stuck. So there's really nothing you know, we think about muscles move us, but muscles without fascia have no form and muscles without fascia can't move past each other. They have no capacity for movement. So it's a really important system, but it's, um, it's been overlooked, I would say more in more recent times as other things have stepped forward, such as genes and microbiology and we've gotten more high tech about what we study and we've stopped really looking at the, the, the macro, what you can see with the naked eye. Fascia is very visible with the naked eye, unless it's not in the drawings that you're looking at, <laughs> which is the case with most of the muscle charts that you can see, you'll see a red guy. And a thing that cracks me up about muscle charts, if I can have a moment for, yes. it's, I don't want to call it a pet peeve because it's funnier than that. The shape of the butt is curved. <laughs> we all know that. But that curvature does not come because your glutes are so robust and round. It comes because you've got fat there, which is fascia suspending adipose tissue to give you your nice, you know, little rumpus. <laughs> is there <laughs> a workout for that? Muscle, 
is there a work? Is there a workout for that? Can I can I I play with my fascia to form it in a nicer like? (laughs) To some degree, yes, because it's a stretch that's always under dynamic change based on stress and load. (laughs) But on the other hand, it's just pretty funny to think that you know that these charts they fill in all the curves you're used to seeing on your body. They fill in with muscle because if they actually drew a muscle body as it exists with out that superficial fascia, which is the most to the surface, which is the, I like to call it like the honeycomb or the cloud body that suspends our fat. That's what gives us our curves. That's what gives us the shape and the silhouette that you recognize, no matter what size you are, you could be a hundred pounds and you know, five foot five, and you still have curves based on your superficial fascia and your fat layer. So there's that, that's that cushion layer that's on the outside. And then you go deep to that and you have an interface with a deep fascia which is completely different and its structure is much more like a sheet or strapping tape as opposed to a three like a a dimensional um, bubble wrap which would be that top layer and that strapping tape layer also comes in deep different forms some places it's very still see-through and almost membranous and other places it literally looks like strapping tape you've got fibers that go through one direction and maybe crisscross in another and it is so that even with a brand new razor sharp scalpel, you will have to make several passes before you can cut through it, which is just mind boggling to me. Like how can something soft and adaptable and organic be that tough to cut through? And it is. And if you've struggled with um, quote unquote dissecting your chicken breast in the kitchen, you've probably had parts of the fascia that just drive you bonkers because you can't cut through it. You keep cutting and it won't cut. So we're very different than fowl. Fowl are not mammals. So when you think about chicken, you're not really getting the full story of what mammal fascia looks like, but, but it's one that we've interacted with probably more than like butchering a cow or a deer, unless you're in Northern Pennsylvania, where my dad used to hunt and do his own butchering. <laughs> you know, several years ago, I did an anatomy training. I have had to take, Teresa was my first anatomy teacher at my 200 hour yoga t- training. And oh, she wow. turned me on to it because I was never, I was more theater than anything. I was not interested in science or anything, but she turned me on. So several anatomy trainings later, we were watching um, a dissection video. Was it Gil? Who was it? I'm not sure. Gil Headley. And so we only got through the superficial fascia and a few of the students had to actually leave the room. It was hard to watch, but he did such a beautiful way of putting like these bucolic scenes in between the hard to watch ones to kind of reset the, the palate. But I had made chicken the night before and it was delicious. I'm a vegan now and I've been vegan for, for three and a half years. But I came home thinking, oh, I'll just eat leftovers. I could not eat the chicken. I couldn't do it. It was, it was, it would, I put, it, oh, I couldn't do it. Your awareness had changed so much, right? Absolutely. Your awareness of that which I see is that which I am. <laughs> oh, yes. And so as you came through all of this deep dive, literally a deep dive into the body and on this fascia pro- um, plastinate project, what does that mean? The plastic part, right? Yes. Keep me moving along, right? We don't have all day. This is supposed to be uh, winding up and we have more to say. Okay. So in brief, if you've seen Body Worlds, this is... um, This is the most famous point of where plastination has been seen worldwide because the inventor of plastination was um, Gunther von Hagens and Body Worlds is the exhibit that was birthed out of um, this 
capacity, the, the ability of this process. S sort of simply put, plastination is a preservation method for human and or animal tissue and birds, actually, they've done all of them, um, that is permanent, it is dry, it halts the decaying process, it is odorless, and it maintains a great deal of the original texture and form of the living structure. It's done through a multi-step process of saturations and extractions and baths of soaking the tissue in order to fully infuse it with plastic. So you have the word to plastinate is the act of pl bringing plastic into the cellular level of the, of the form. In short, the plastic replaces the water. So wherever there was water in your body, there's now a silicone plastic that enables it to be stiffer and permanently able to be displayed, which the result of that is that it allows us to see dissection outside of the laboratory. And it also is able to then bring the body back to a form of almost, I want to say life. There's sort of another life that is given because it is not, if you've ever been to a body worlds exhibit, you don't feel like it's been a study in death. It's a study in life. And um, through the colorization process and the posturing, once again, looping back to the beginning of our talk, the postures that they have put a lot of the plastinates in uh, are a slice in time of a movement. So you'll have a soccer player as he's reaching to catch the ball as it goes into the net, or an ice skater in the middle of her turn, or, or any number of just elegant postures that actually have a sense of quality of movement that it feels like a, like a photograph. But with pockets opened and things exposed in a way that allows you to see beneath the surface in three dimensions, which is a very hard thing to recreate. Uh, most of our images are two-dimensional and we are not. <laughs> and so having a plastin, it gives you that 3D view of the human form, but you get to choose what you dissect away, what you leave behind. So it's an artifact. It's a, it's a creation of someone's idea and it is true anatomy, but it's, it's been altered to show you what they want to show you. Mm -hmm. And up to now, the fascia has not been highlighted. And they've shown what people recognize, the muscles and the nerves and the brain and the tendons and the ligaments. And they leave the, they take away any of the fascia that can be removed. Who needs to see the skin? Who needs to see the fat? Who needs to see that strapping tape covering? It's covering up the stuff we wanna see. So it's been removed. So there's been this desire for more than a decade of many people in the fascia research community to do a fascia plastinate that would highlight the fascial system. And so um, that's what we did. And I would say probably the biggest takeaway is how much it is impossible to, to take something away to, or how difficult it is to remove something to show connection. <laughs> how, how do you dissect, which means to cut apart, to show relationship and connection. And we were, um, we were challenged by that. But I think the design, which was very strongly led by both the director of the Plastinarium and Plastination, Dr. Uh, Vladimir Cheraminsky, with the, uh, with the blended artistry and incredible mind of Gary Carter, who has a background in movement and in dance and in manual therapy and, and fascia, 
was able to show how we could do windows and we could do a slight lifting. So it's separated here, but it's still connected there. So you would get an idea of how you could rebuild in your mind how this all comes back together um, without taking it fully apart. So there's still muscles and there's still bones and many things you'd recognize, but uh, the fascia is new to a lot of people. They just haven't seen it. What I'm totally grooving on here is that you have this beautiful, you know, practice and history with the arts. And then there's this, you know, the, the Chinese medicine, the, the, the massage, you know, the more sort of um, Eastern practices. And, and then there's this hard science that you're, you're in, you're in it. And it's just another example of how we can't deny one for the other, that we have to, in order to embody ourselves, and I noticed in, in our question about culture, a lot of people, and I'm saying this is from our intake question, we weren't talking about it here, right. a lot of people stumble, they say they don't know what that means, and then they answer it beautifully. But <laughs> how do we embody our, our individual selves in a, a world that is of collective individuals' souls that create a wholeness in this, in this world. Like this is one of our aims here is to find those connections. Like you're talking about trying to find those connections underneath by taking things away. How do we find the connection of the individual to the collective and that we are not separate? That when you peel away our skin, like we're all the same under that. There's, there's really oh. no difference, <laughs> right? So yeah. like we, maybe we should be peeling away the most superficial part, the skin part. Um, we can study that another time, but to right. see this, this incredible global collective that is this human form. I keep the, every conversation that we have, whether it's with a guest or with each other, I walk away thinking, why don't we know that we're connected? Why, why have we forgotten that, that you know, what's happening overseas is happening here, that what's happening there is happening to us? Like, why don't we feel that vibration of connectivity? Mm -hmm. um, maybe this is part of what, why we're doing this, is to, to excavate the different stories of this, this body. We can yeah. figure that shit out, man. I yeah. Know. And I would say even including the connection to other humans and saying, yes, we all share this same basic anatomy. But I also, my eyes were opened how much I share connection to nature, you know, and, and Gil Headley is so such an artist at that to be able to say, hey, look, recognize this. It's mm -hmm. a cantaloupe. No, wait, it's the back <laughs> of your skin, you know, and it's like, whoa, those patterns are the same. And I, I very much during um, one of his trainings, I would just walk around. I was up in San Francisco and I'd find a tree and I'd be like, I saw that today, but it was inside a human. And I really had this sense of, wow, we are of the earth. And I think I was telling somebody about this the other night. I said, yeah, I don't know what I thought, but I struggled. I maybe in my more, you know, cerebral intellectual, like side in college is like, we're so different. Why do this? The animals don't struggle, but we struggle to even find a comfortable pillow. Like, what's that about? You know, like, are we really from <laughs> or is it true that we were deposited by an alien spaceship somewhere along the line and all of that just melted away when i saw the inside of my own form reflected in this dissected form it's like nope this is it rivers streams tributaries mountain ranges forests um veins in leaves backs of cantaloupes this the cross section of a strawberry like it's all in me it's cauliflower uh, cauliflower over and over <laughs> information 
uh, frilly lettuce. It's just like we're we're nature. We are we are of that and we are of that. The consciousness part is the maybe the part that's different, but maybe that's just because we only understand our own consciousness and no one's talked to a cauliflower lately. Thank you. Thank you for, for saying that because it's easy for me to overlook that, but I don't in life I don't overlook it. But in the conversation, I think that's a really key element because we we reflect everything, you know, everything is a reflection of who we are in this world and looking out like even, you know, spirit animals. I've been seeing the same red fox, you know, running <laughs> at the same time. I'm like, what am I, what, what, what is that saying? But yes, these, these reflections that nature is showing back to us that um, we, we have to take better care. Well, and doesn't that give us that sense of belonging? Mm -hmm. And when we feel like we belong and that we're a part of this, you know, Mary Oliver has this incredible poem where she talks about like calling, there's um, uh, the wild geese calling, yeah. wild geese, right? Wild you read, geese. And it's like that you belong, you belong. You do not have to go crawling on your knees repenting. You know, you are a part of this. Meanwhile, all of this is surrounding you and you are that. And I just wonder what, if we really felt that all the way up, global leaders on down to the most dejected you know, middle schooler. <laughs> where, where would we land? How would we treat each other if we felt that at peace and that at home in our own hearts and in this on this planet and with each other? I, I think it would change everything. It would change everything. There's a lot about fascia that I think is a great metaphor and model for us to feel that connected. It is the tissue of connection and, you know, but some of the things that really I took away from my, some of my fascia training is that it connects everything in the body, but it also separates for individuality so that different parts have their space and their expression. So there is a lot of ways that I can look at the body specifically from the fascial system and feel like I have my connection that what I am made up of and how that system is in the body. I just look at it as this metaphor you mentioned earlier that we can ask for something different and we can change that shape. Um, I think it was Dr. Schleip when we were in the class who says it deforms and reforms based on requests without bias. Um, yes, what a great statement. Which is a beautiful metaphor for how we can show up in the world as well to deform and reform based on what's going on what we need to bring forward and to do it in from a place of compassion and empathy um but we have been talking for so long and that is just a rabbit hole that we could go down again and uh, maybe ask judith to cut this into two podcasts instead of you like maybe you do a part two yeah. <laughs> well, well, another one. come back so inspiring though i just have to thank you guys i'm so i'm so inspired by both of you just having this conversation and even what you just said Teresa, is like wow it's that's you know we're all going through a lot right now and myself not omitted from that at all and it is really helpful to hear words like that it's like my fascia already knows how to do it which means on some level i know how to do it right i know how to form and reform According to demand request without bias because my body already knows it and that's a that's an access point that I I needed that thank you that was beautiful you are welcome but I want you to tell us I know you have three amazing things that are coming up okay three things if I can track them and keep them brief so first I've um 
I, I wrote my article for ABMP magazine about the Plastination project right after we had the first creation of the first plastinates. We're still in process. But I was so inspired. I was like, this story must be told. And I was very concerned that it wouldn't be. And so I, I started the social media stream and I called, I cold called my my uh, my professional organization. I said, can I write an article for your magazine? I think you'd be interested. So that relationship started back in 2016. And so now fast forward to this year and they were having their continuing education summit and they're focusing on none other than fascia. And apparently there were several people in the meeting that said, have we called Rochelle Clausen? I bet she'd be <laughs> interested in this. So I am one of eight presenters, I believe, that will be presenting at the Fascia Summit um, for CEs. And it's free in its first airing to everyone. And then it's continuing to be free for members in the CE area in perpetuity. It's an evergreen content. So if this is airing after the March 21st, you can still go and access it through ABMP. A great lineup of Dr. Robert Schleip, David Lazondak and Gil Headley, some people we've already mentioned and named, Allison Denny and others, all going from what is fascia, what does it look like, all the way to how do we work with it and treat it in our patients and clients. So that's very exciting to me. Um, it's also a bit of a debut for my new company that I've co-founded with Nicole Trombley called Anatomy Scapes, as you mentioned. And Anatomy Scapes is unusual. We are, uh, we're we're a little bit undefined in some ways because we're just doing what feels right for us, which is to bring anatomy into a beautiful and playful and understandable but real space through a fascia lens. So we are doing gross anatomy dissection in the lab, um, but we've taken images and we're I, I say we're taking the gross out of gross anatomy, if that's possible, <laughs> just to be a little playful because as we are putting what we said some digital pixie dust on these images to make them very viewable to everyone and even my boyfriend who refuses to look at any of the pictures i take in the dissection lab is tolerant of these so to me I, that's great strides but it's to kind of give people that view that doesn't gross them out but more lets them see pattern shape texture relationship so we emphasize palpatory skills in the dissection lab in our two-day workshops which you're not doing dissection you're simply palpating and and observing and asking questions and then we do movement and then we do a craft and then we do hands-on and it's just try to just engage all of the senses but with a very real and serious component which is obviously um, having the incredible privilege of being able to work with donors uh, which is a very restricted area and in some countries it's not even allowed to people of my you know unless you're a surgeon or a doctor there's no reason they see free to be working with cadavers and even in our own country in New York does not allow it but California does so um, it's just been a gift so we have two workshops coming up May and June you can go to the website to find details we have monthly opportunities to come into the dissection lab and actually dissect alongside of us as we do research projects and we'll teach you the basic skills and help you see and learn, earn some merit badges for really understanding the primary fascial layers and components. Um, and then we're gonna have an anatomy lounge where you can hang out with us online and chat for an hour each month and just share. So we've got subscription boxes. There's so much stuff. It's all just sort of exploding in front of us. We've been working on it for a year, but it's all really taking shape right now. So that then leads us to Canada. And like you had mentioned, the Fascia Research Congress is going to be, it is delayed. It was supposed to be last year, but they postponed it for a year. And we're really crossing our fingers that it will all still go as planned. 
and it's in Montreal, Fascia Research Congress, September. It's a three-day Congress, but there's pre-conference workshops, and I'm co-presenting a pre-conference workshop about the Fascial Net Plastination Project. And we didn't really get into it a lot, but the project we've been really working towards is a full body plastinate. So her name is Freya. That's a name that we gave her. It's the goddess of Norse goddess of love. Um, we've re they changed the letters around to make it actually also be an acronym, which stands for Fascia, uh, fascia Revealed, um, Educating Interconnected Anatomy. So this is Freya. She is living in Berlin at the moment in the Berlin Body Worlds exhibit, but our attempt is to have her brought to Montreal to be on display during the entirety of the Congress so that people can see real fascia up close. And for more information about her, of course, you can go to the Fascia Research Society website as well. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know things are, you know, chaotic at best at times, and we're just so grateful. This has been has been another great conversation, and certainly, you know, there's there's more. There's more to address. There's more to talk about. Um, yeah. Thank you for joining us, and I can't wait to see you in California. <laughs> Same here. My pleasure. Thank you, Rochelle, for this dynamic conversation. We definitely look forward to more. Links for Rochelle are in the show notes. We hope that you will follow her journey. Next episode, it's back to the two of us discussing the hero's journey as it relates to embodiment. What is the hero's journey and how do we know if we're on one? How does this journey contribute to our embodiment as individuals and as a society? What are some examples of a hero's journey? We will touch on all of this and more. Please send us an email with your hero's journey stories at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. Sharing your stories will assist our effort to reveal the threads that connect us as individuals to the collective. I'm Sherry Sadoff-Hank. I'm Teresa Tobin-Macy, and we are Anecdotal Anatomy. Until next time. <laughs>